Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we're pleased to welcome Todd Rundgren. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Rhino Podcast. John Hughes, how are you this fine day? I'm good, Rich. I am doing great, thanks. Excellent. Glad to hear that. Well, we've got a new year, a new month, and some new releases to talk about. What's first on your list? Well, you know, it is Rhino's Black History Month. We're going to be celebrating that this week. We're kicking it off. We've got new releases every Friday all through the month of February, including both digital and vinyl releases from people like Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, Donny Hathaway, Lil' Kim, Curtis Mayfield, and a lot more. Specifically on Friday the 5th, vinyl releases include George Benson's Breezin. I heard a rumor he might be coming on the podcast soon. I heard the same thing. <laughs> also, Donny Hathaway, the Donny Hathaway collection, which is a two LP set on purple vinyl and out digitally on Friday as well. The Jungle Brothers done by the forces of nature deluxe edition. If you are curious, check out the full lineup of releases for February at rhino.com. Now, these vinyl releases have limited quantities, so don't wait. If there's one you want, grab it as soon as you can, or you're going to be paying more on eBay later. That's always the way it is now, right? Yep. Here's one near and dear to my heart. The Pet Shop Boys have their first DVD and two CD issue of Discovery live in Rio 1994. This was a performance filmed in, guess where, Rio (laughs) during the duo's 1994 Discovery Tour. Basically what it says on the tin. The set list includes classic hits like West End Girls, Suburbia, Being Boring, Go West, Rent, Always On My Mind. And, you know, they also have their uh, cool cover of Blur's Girls and Boys that they remixed uh, for Blur as well. Love that so song. That's Great song. This. Yeah. This has only been available previously on VHS, so this is the first time you'll be able to get it on DVD and listen to the audio on CDs. And this is on pre-order now and is coming out April 30th. You know it's going to be all cleaned up and it's going to look really sharp, so this will be cool to yeah. check out. I mean, Pet Shop Boys in Rio, sign me up. It's got to be a party, right? 
right? Yeah. And don't forget about Black Sabbath Volume 4 revisited the super deluxe edition of the band's 1972 classic, which includes a newly remastered version of the album, plus 20 previously unreleased studio and live recordings. This is available both as a 4-CD or a 5-LP version, and wow. this comes out yeah, this comes out February 12th. Awesome. Well, we got a little bit of something for everybody there. Right? You can't lose. Check everything out on rhino.com. Thank you very much, John. We'll see you next time. Todd Rundgren is a singer-songwriter with instantly recognizable classics in his catalog, but he's also one of the world's best producers, having produced such artists as The Band, The New York Dolls, Paul Butterfield Blues Band, Meatloaf, The Psychedelic Furs, Patti Smith, Badfinger, Grand Funk, Hall & Oates, Rick Derringer, The Tube, Sean Cassidy, Cheap Trick, XTC, you get the picture. Todd's resume is so loaded with achievements, there was no way to touch on everything, but he was very generous with his time, for which we thank him very much. We're going to split this conversation into two episodes, so keep your eyes peeled for the second one, which will air next month. Todd has a groundbreaking virtual tour coming up starting February 14th entitled The Clearly Human Tour, where you can watch him rock out in the comfort of your own living room. Thanks very much for joining us here on the Rhino Podcast, Todd. Uh, my pleasure. You know, me and Rhino like this, although people can't see it, I don't know. but He's got his <laughs> fingers crossed, intertwined, an unending bond. Yeah. <laughs> uh, been associated with Rhino for like ever since there was Rhino, I think. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've been working with them now for about 16 years, 15 years. And one of the first things I saw when I walked in the building, I think, was a NAS compilation. Yeah, I, I think it all started with the Nuggets record. Yeah. A couple of uh, NAS songs were on the Nuggets series, and that's the first releases they did. And then they acquired uh, the NAS albums, and now they got, you know, a big chunk of my catalog. Good people. They care about music, for sure. Definitely. And uh, look forward to a long relationship. All right. <laughs> right on. You've got... A groundbreaking tour coming up. It is the Clearly Human Tour. You are going to be playing your 1989 album, Nearly Human, each night. That will be part of the show. Because yeah, right. that whole thing is less than an hour, and we play two hours a night. And, and we're not, and we never have played it like beginning to end. We play most all of the record, but it's spread throughout the show. So you're going to play Nearly Human. It'll be sprinkled in with, I imagine you're probably going to change up what songs go in between those songs each night to keep it interesting for you and the audiences. We may. We were going to probably have more material than we can play in any one night, so we'll likely make it up. Yeah. You know, that from our standpoint, it's still a tour. So we would probably do the first show. Whatever we did on the first show, we would also do in the second show because we would realize in the first show what we didn't do right <laughs> and try and fix it on the second show. And then once we have the confidence, you know, that we're playing the material, all the material correctly, we'll start adding in new material. 
this is really a unique tour tour. We need to talk about how it's working. You've got 25 shows. It starts the 14th and you're going to be playing all of these shows from Chicago. No matter where you live, you can buy a show, buy any of the available shows, but they are not available in certain markets that will be playing in the fall, which means principally that we won't be localizing for those markets. Uh, what does that mean, localizing? <laughs> the audience is already local. You know, they're wherever they are. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. So if we play, you know, if we say we're doing a gig for Buffalo and, you know, we want anybody in Buffalo to buy uh, a ticket to that gig because we're going to pretend to be in Buffalo. Right. We're going to set all the clocks in our venue to Buffalo time. <laughs> so we're in the same time zone. Right. We're going to festoon the entire backstage area with all manner of Buffalo memorabilia, like posters and, you know, sports memorabilia, uh, Buffalo Bills, of course. Maybe sure. Send us a helmet. We can put back there, you know, <laughs> local newspapers and, you know, and local entertainment newspapers and say what's going on in the town and localizing the catering that we have as well. In other words, we'll probably, we'll try and get, and if we can't get, we will try to recreate Buffalo wings for our catering, you know, yeah. so that we, in our heads, are in Buffalo. There you go. In our Facebook feeds and stuff like that, our social media feeds, we'll also be reinforcing that all day long. All day long, we are in Buffalo, you know. Yeah. We'll give you, you get us eating our Buffalo catered dinner. You know, we'll get a peek at our backstage area. The meet and greets, we're going to pretend we're in Buffalo. See, you that's know? cool. How are the meet and greets going to work? People can get a meet and greet with you before the show. Or what, before the show, after the show? I do them before the show. I always do them before the show. Um, usually just to wipe down after the show to do that kind of intense interaction. I've done some virtual meet and greets along with a video show that I did in the summer. I did six episodes and each had a meet and greet opportunity. And while it's technically a meet and greet, I found it unsatisfying probably for me and for them because it's essentially like an app that's running automatically. You dump a list of phone numbers into it. It calls me up on my iPad and says, here's the next person when you're ready press this button and we'll call them up. And then you call that person up and they get precisely one minute to say whatever they want, you know, <laughs> and you take a little virtual selfie on the phone. Yeah. And, and it's up to me. I can give them an extra 20 seconds. So the maximum anybody ever gets regardless is a minute and 20 seconds. And it's only them. There's the only one you're talking to. Now the meet and greets that we're used to is, bunch of people come to the venue early, you know, usually like two hours before the show. Yeah. Come to the venue. They line up. We stand against the wall and take a picture with everybody. Then they line up again. And I sit at a table and I sign stuff for, for everybody. And during those two interactions, everybody else is watching. And everyone can, else can hear what we're saying to each other. And we have, you know, a little interaction while we're taking the pictures. And probably a little more interaction while I'm signing something for them. So to make it more like that, what we're going to do is we're going to use Zoom and we're going to have a room with three video screens in it. Essentially, everyone will be distributed on these video screens. And when it's their time, you know, for their picture, 
they will take over the whole video screen. They can see the video screen and they can take a picture of me standing with them. Oh, that's cool. Video screen. Yeah, right on. And everyone else can watch while we're doing them. That's you know? uh, great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like the whole thing where you're just sitting at home waiting for me to call you so that you can interact with me for a minute and 20 seconds. (laughs) That's great. Well, that's really well thought out. Really, really really cool. So, but you're also actually going to have a very limited number of in-person seats available at these shows, aren't you? Yeah. Well, we're not exactly sure how many of those there are. We have our first line is we have a virtual audience there. Um, We have video panels set up in where the seats would be, or literally in the seats, you know, as it were. You've probably seen a similar thing like an NBA game, NBA playoff game, something like that. And people can essentially buy a ticket to the front rows. And it won't make their experience necessarily a lot different, except that now we can interact with them. We can see their face. That so say, very similar to the meet and greet, say, they're going to be there in the video. Hey, Margaret, how you doing? You yeah, know, right? Yeah. yeah, so cool. Um, That's great. You're going to have merch, tour merch as well. Uh, well, the, the merch will be through the through the application that you're actually viewing the show with. Yeah. So you have you know you can buy merch anytime. Um, you can also chat with anyone else who's watching the show. There's a oh, live cool. chat that yeah. goes on the whole time. That's great. Or you can make the show full screen, just watch that. There's also an option, a multi-camera option. So that if you just don't want to watch just the director's cut, you can pick pre- particular camera views. You know, you just want to watch the drummer all night. Go ahead. <laughs> Prairie Prince, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Right on. Very cool. I love that. There was a Who video that had the ox cam. And during this one performance, you could just watch John Entwistle, the whole song. It was very cool. There you go. So, the yeah. ox cam. The ox cam. Yeah, I know. Brought to you by Oxfam. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, and where can people go to buy tickets for this, Todd? What's the website? Nocap.com. If you go to nocap, N-O-C-A-P.com, it will probably be uh, somewhere in their list of coming events. And then you can go to the, to the section of that that will give you all of it. There's a direct link, but I don't want to get it wrong and give people a bunch gotcha. of disinformation. That so it's nocap.com. Dot com is they're essentially the, I guess you would say the promoters of the show, yeah. even though from a financial standpoint, I'm the promoter. It's all you, baby. So I imagine you're taking off soon to, uh, you're going to rehearse in Chicago in the venue? Next Wednesday, we all go to Chicago. Uh, we check into our uh, rooms in a resident residence hotel that we've pretty much taken over. Everyone gets a kitchen and a laundry to themselves. Nice. We wait there until 7 p.m. Isolated uh, until at least 7 p.m. when a testing service comes around and tests everybody. Wow. How often are you guys going to get tested? What's that? How often are you going to get tested? Well, everyone gets tested immediately as we all get there, you Mm -hmm. know, or as once everyone is all there, then we all get tested. Yeah. Uh, We've got a, essentially a bubble situation. We've got the hotel where everyone is, has you know their personal isolation situation. We've got uh, the same vehicle that takes us every day to the rehearsal space and back again. And the rehearsal space is the other part of the bubble. Anyone who is going into that has to have a negative test. 
And then the, the rest is sort of a, a combination of contact tracing. In other words, everyone has to keep track of everywhere they go and we'll find some kind of app to help us do that. And then if you hear about a report of a uh, infection in any of those locations, that would trigger a test. Yeah. Uh, if you've been someplace where someone has tested positive, then that would trigger a test. And if someone new, not previously tested, comes into the bubble, then they have to go through the same testing routine. In other words, they have to go back into isolation. They have to get go into isolation and be tested, not come out until the test is negative. The tests are fairly rapid, but not instant. They'll be like six to 12 hours probably. That's pretty quick. That's pretty quick. Uh, it's quicker than, you know, I mean, if you went to the CVS, they can't give you a, a hard time. You know, it'll be yeah. like 24 to 72 hours, you know, and, you know, we've had experience with that before. We've had people supposed to fly out here, you know, and to fly into Hawaii, you need to present a negative test. And, you know, you take the test 72 hours beforehand and they don't deliver you the results in, in even 72 hours and you have to cancel a flight. So, oh, man. Uh, yeah. So we need, you know, we can't go by that kind of like 24 to 72. It's sure. got to be guaranteed, you know, the briefest possible window with the most dependable results. So essentially what happens is it doesn't get collected, you know, at the CPS. You know, somebody comes in, goes immediately to the, to the lab. It goes di right directly to the yeah, lab uh, without sitting around at all. And, uh, and that way we can get the test within six to 12 hours. Yeah, you're right. And if we do manage to have like actual live bodies, which is, you know, we can't confirm because the rules keep changing. You know, they keep saying, you know, only this many people, then as compliance uh, falls in, into line and infection rates drop, then they will say, okay, you can have this many people. And also, if we, you know, anyone within our entourage who becomes qualified for a vaccine is going to immediately get vaccinated. I mean, this virtual thing, I don't think it'll go away because what inspired it wasn't a pandemic. It was, it was climate change that inspired this whole idea in me in the first place. What happens when the weather gets so bad that you can't travel anywhere? Yeah. Airports are shut down. Highways are shut down. Entire state of California is in flames. Yeah. Half of Texas is underwater, you know? Right. And yeah. the climate, climate isn't going to suddenly get better. It's true. We're going to have more and more of these events. So yeah. I started thinking about this as an alternative to touring like four years ago. But in that case, you know, we still would have been sending uh, our product to venues because most venues have video projection in them now. So the experience from a user standpoint would have been pretty nearly the same. Yeah. You know, yeah. hire a babysitter, <laughs> go park the car, <laughs> go to dinner, go to the venue, you know, buy you know, the, the drink minimum, whatever that is. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and watch the show. The only thing is that we're not physically there. But at least we guaranteed that you would get a show. This way, the bathroom's clean and the drinks are cheap. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, that's it. That's one of the advantages of the virtual shows. Yeah, sure. You know, yeah, you buy sure. one ticket, the whole family can watch, and as many of the neighbors as you can fit in the house. <laughs> as watch. long as y'all wear masks or they're part of your pod. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the drinks are a lot cheaper. The as drinks well. are a lot cheaper. Well, let's back up just a little bit. You are born and raised in Philadelphia, correct? Yes, I was. Outside of Philadelphia, a western suburb called Upper Darby. But uh, Jim Croce and uh, Jim Croce went to my high school. Oh, no way. And so did Tina Fey. <laughs> Get out of here. That's yeah, but not at the same time. He graduated before me and Tina Fey long after me. So. Right, right, right. You were, it was the Todd Rundgren sandwich at your high school. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Sherry <laughs> uh, O'Terry is in there somewhere, too. Oh, small world, small world. So I don't know what the music scene was like back then in Philadelphia, but how did you get involved and what was your first instrument? The first instrument that I got serious about was the guitar, although I had taken instrument lessons on like flute before that because I wanted to learn how to play the flute. I liked the sound of it. Yeah. So in those days, they had music programs in elementary school. You could buy into music lessons and instrument rental. And so I uh, thought I wanted to play the flute until I tried to play the flute and realized how difficult it was. But my sister got a clarinet and I did much better on that. That was easier to learn. And it made my dad happy when I learned to play like Two Strangers on the Shore by Mr. Ackerbilt. <laughs> um, but then the ventures came out and I got um, very much interested in the guitar after Walk Don't Run. Yeah. What was the first guitar you got? Some cheesy Asian made you know, it costs like $25 acoustic guitar that came with three months of lessons, which I hated. I hated the lessons. I just wanted the guitar, but my parents couldn't get the guitar for cheap unless they bought the lessons. So I endured that for precisely the three months of lessons <laughs> and, and then quit that because I turned out that I was very good at picking tunes out by ear. So it wasn't really necessary for me to take lessons to learn how to play. Yeah. Back to this day, I can't read music. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny how most popular musicians can't. Well, I think, you know, that your fate as a musician, the, the fate that you want to escape as a musician is being like strictly a union player, you know, who sits in the union office waiting for a call to come in for a bar mitzvah band you know <laughs> yeah, right. you've got big thick fake book on your lap you know? yeah right <laughs> <laughs> you know that's got every standard that anybody would ever request in it you know and that's yeah, your life sure. as a musician so you wind up stuck doing that and then you have to learn how to read but the ideal was get a record deal start writing your own songs and never have to learn how to read music. Yeah, right, right. The Naz wasn't your first band, though, was it? Well, I had a high school band that was fated never to last past high school because, like, my best friend who I formed a band with, actually, I was not going to go on to further education because, A, my parents couldn't afford it, and B, I sucked at it. But he was going to med school, eventually to become a psychiatrist. So as soon as we graduated high school, he was gone. And I left home because I couldn't stand it and went to meet up a friend in Ocean City, New Jersey, and we were going to start a band. We actually wound up joining a pre-existing band called Woody's Truck Stop. 
which was a blues band in Philadelphia around 1966. And uh, I was a slide guitar player and he was a drummer. And uh, that lasted for about eight months. <laughs> Do you guys emulate anybody in particular? Is that, was a, that was a real popular style of band back then. Yeah, we saw ourselves as the Butterfield Band, essentially. It was the same kind of lineup. Yeah, right on. Two guitar players, uh, keyboard player, bass drums, and lead singer. Did you ever get to meet Mike Bloomfield? I did meet Mike Bloomfield. I've met everybody. Well, I can't say everybody in the Butterfield Band because they went through a lot of changes before I eventually produced the band. Sure. But every time that they would play in New York City at the Cafe Agogo, I'd be sure and be there. And I remember asking uh, Mike Bloomfield if he would give me some guitar tips. And he said, no, nah, I don't do that kind of thing. So <laughs> I got Elvin Bishop to give me some guitar tips, <laughs> even though I wasn't there to see Elvin Bishop. Yeah, right. I was only there to see Mike Bloomfield. <laughs> but yeah, eventually I got to, you know, I got to know Paul pretty well. He lived up in Woodstock. Okay. Uh, produced record for them. Also, we had that ill-fated Janis Joplin session with the Butterfield Band. I was originally supposed to produce what turned out to be her last album. Is that the album that turned out to be Pearl? Yeah, it turned out to be Pearl. And it turned out to be produced by Paul Rothschild. Right. But I, uh, I was doing prep for the record out in uh, Mill Valley, and we got a call from Albert's office, and they had a songwriter on staff who came up with a song and they all collectively decided, okay, Janice has to do this song without any of us having heard the song or her ever having any choice about whether to do it or not. And they further added, okay, we're going to, you're going to do it with the Butterfield band. And so we had a session, we went to LA, we had a session that lasted about three hours and, and nobody was particularly satisfied with the results of the progress. And nobody was crazy about the song to start with. So, so much for that. Yeah. Came to realize that, you know, Janice is the way that she liked to work was not necessarily the way that I worked because my focus would be principally on the music and how do we make the music as good as we can possibly make it. And she, I believe, hated making records because there was no audience involved. She was right. only comfortable if she had an audience and, you know, had a very hard time getting into the proper mood if there was no audience there. So she didn't really like being in the studio that much. And she needed someone who would just simply constantly pump her up yeah. all the time. Right. And that was kind of what Paul Rothschild did. Paul Rothschild didn't know a whole lot about music, but he knew how to like, you know, pump an artist up. So <laughs> he did a good job with the doors too, except for the last record when they decided not to work anymore together. <laughs> <laughs> Before you got into producing, though, obviously we talked about the NAS just briefly, but how did you guys get signed? And, um, and, and kind of that's that was obviously was your entry point into professional musicianship. What's the story about the NAS? And where were you guys located, actually? Were you in Philadelphia still, or were you, did you relocate to New York? Uh, the band uh, was formed in Philadelphia. And almost immediately, at after we formed because of a combination of my reputation having been in Woody Struckstop and one of the other guys in the band had been in Woody Struckstop. Woody Struckstop was like the biggest local band in downtown Philadelphia at the time. So anyway, when they heard that I had put together a group, 
the guys who own the local, the record store on Chestnut Street in Philly offered to manage us and gave us a space above the record store to rehearse in. And we started doing gigs around town and we became, you know, really a hot phenomenon in the local scene, but we had no record label and we hadn't really even written any original material. We were doing all cover songs. Anyway, the Who came to town. They were opening for the Mamas and Papas uh, wow. uh, venue from U of P campus. And so we went to see the Who. We were determined to see the Who. After the show, we heard that they were staying at the Holiday Inn downtown. So me and the drummer went to the Holiday Inn. And one of the things about the band was that we made a point of dressing like we were in a band. Like we didn't wear like regular street clothes or, you know, just plain old jeans and T-shirt. We always dressed like we were in a band. Yeah. Platform shoes yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and bell-bottom pants or whatever, you know, frilly shirts. And we went to the bar at the Holiday Inn and Roger was there. And we started talking him up, you know, about the who, asking him all kinds of questions about the band. And he was enduring us. And during that conversation, a guy comes up to us and says, are you guys in a band? You know, and since we went to so much trouble to look like we were in a band, we yeah. said, well, of course. We're it worked. Band. Yeah. <laughs> and as it turns out, he was a guy, uh, his name was John Curlin, and he was a publicist. He happened to be in town, not for the Who, but because he was doing publicity for the Mamas and Papas. Okay. But it turns out he wanted to uh, move from uh, promotion to management. So he was looking for a band to manage. And when he saw us, he said, they look like the bands that I want to manage. Now let's <laughs> see if they can actually play. So the next day, uh, he went to our rehearsal space and listened to us play. A couple days later, he invited his partner down to hear us. And they decided, yeah, this is the band that we're going to manage. So they essentially negotiated buying out our previous management was the record store owners downstairs. Yeah. And took us to New York. And at first we thought, oh, we're going to live in New York City. Great. But apparently he didn't want to pay the rent necessary for us to stay in New York City. So we started looking on Long Island and we wound up looking further and further and further out Long Island. <laughs> we eventually wound up in a house in Great Neck, Long Island, like almost an hour out of New York City. <laughs> That's funny. Well, a couple of songs that really kind of stand out for me from the Naz opened my eyes. Really cool song. And one of the early songs that made great use of flanging, I might add. How did you guys achieve that in the studio? Because you didn't have flange pedals like, you know, that came out later, 10 years later or whatever. Well, I had heard it before. I'd heard it. It had been done a couple of times before. Most notably in my ear was Itchy Coop Park. Yeah, totally. But small space. Yeah. But it was also like a hit single by Timmy Euro called The Big Hurt had featured that swishing sound. And it was probably discovered by accident, just like I discovered how to do it by accident. I had a stereo tape recorder and I got it into my head to create fake stereo by copying a mono track to two stereo tracks one at a time, not at the same time, but do one pass and put it on the left track and another pass and put it on the right track. There'd be tiny little time variations of what happened when I went through that. Yeah. And at one point, I started to go, just like that. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, I figured out how to do that sound. Right. And uh, it was just about the time, you know, when it was before we got signed, but about the time when I was writing 
Open My Eyes as our first single and thinking, got to have this in Open My Eyes. So when we went to actually record the master, it was in a small studio. I think I would think we did a four track. I don't think it was quite eight track. It was probably four track. Yeah. And I showed the engineer how to do it, how, how to do the flanging for the parts where we wanted the flanging at the end of the course. It essentially involved using two tape machines. Yeah. Three tape machines, actually. You got to have two for the original on the copy that you're going to change the speed of. And then another machine to write it to. Yeah, okay. So, uh, so yeah, it was a really heady experience going in there and actually showing an engineer how to make a record. <laughs> on our very first single. I am blind to whatever they're saying And all I can see is the fire in your eyes Make me wise Oh, it's all I believe in lies We don't know where to go And I can't see things to open my eyes Can't see things to open my eyes Can't see things to open my eyes Well, I think you're showing early signs of your ability as a producer there. And how involved were you as, you know, on the production of those albums? Well, we made some assumptions early on about production, which didn't turn out to be absolutely correct. The first assumption we made was that the producer had something to do with the sound. The producer really doesn't. It's the engineer who's in charge of the sound aspect of it. But also... We knew there was some difference between American producers and English producers, but we didn't know what it was. So we just looked for records that we liked the sound of and said, get that producer. Yeah. So one of the very first ones that we wanted to get, his name was Mike something. And he produced uh, John Mayle on the Blues Breakers featuring Eric Clapton. Great album. You know, and I love the sound of that record. Yeah. You know, the guitar just really great on it. So I thought, oh, let's get that guy. He wasn't interested in producing some, what he thought was an American pop band. I think we hit up a couple other English producers and uh, nobody was interested. So we wound up going to an American producer who produced a record that we liked the sound of, still thinking that he had something to do with the sound. It was a Shadows of Night record, I think. When we got into the studio, we finally did learn what the difference between <laughs> English producers was where an American producer American producer doesn't necessarily involved in the in the making of the record at all beyond ensuring that you don't go past three hours and run the budget up. In other <laughs> words, you sat there reading the trades through most of the process and just telling us every once in a while, oh, I think that note was out of tune, maybe. You know, that was the most he contributed yeah. musically to the entire thing. But otherwise, he was just making sure that the sessions got done on time. And then uh, we went to mixing the in a little mixing room that they had there. And he mixed it. And then after we le he left, we decided we didn't like the sound of it. So that was the first time I ever put my hands on a console and remixed the first Naz album after the producer left. And so after that, I got it in my head that I'm the producer now. Yeah. So when we got yeah. to the next record, I declared myself the producer <laughs> and lorded it over everybody in the studio. And that's why the band broke up. <laughs> One reason why the tent broke up. Do you feel like you had just a natural ability to understand how to do that the same way that you could pick up a guitar and, and learn a song easily? 
Did it just come to you naturally? Well, one is, you know, one is sort of a musical ability. You know, you've got a musical brain and just born that way because yeah. I was into music as long as anyone can remember. The other is a comfort level with technology. And that's because my dad was an engineer. He worked at a DuPont plant in Philadelphia and the house, you know, he had a giant tool bench and he could build radios out of kits from Heathkit, you know, and knew what all of the little colors on the resistors and capacitors meant. Right. And so I grew up without a fear of technology, like a lot of people do. You were comfortable with it. Yeah. So putting my hands on the board, I'm fine with that. Yeah. You know? right. so I find I'm not intimidated by all these knobs and sliders. I'll just get in there and I'll learn by doing, which essentially was what happened. I learned most of the basics by doing the first two NAS records, paying a lot of attention to what the engineer was doing in terms of mic placement, you know, and and paying extra attention into the in the control room about the sound of things and what effect changing the EQ had on the sound and all that rudimentary stuff. So that by the time I got done the second NAS album, I had given everyone the impression that I was a producer slash engineer. And found my <laughs> I quit the NAS and found myself on the street not doing anything, like living with clothiers in the West Village of New York and designing lights for a discotheque because I didn't have an instrument even wow. at that point. Really? And eventually the partner of the guy who managed the NAS, he had gone to work for Albert Grossman and he sought me out, somehow tracked me down and said, and told me that his mandate there was to bring in young artists with young attitudes to help modernize the stable of artists that were at Albert Grossman. Because he started managing people when there wasn't yet even a folk movement. You know, he was part of the folk movement. Sure. And here we are sure. in the late 60s, you know, post-Beatles already. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I wound up initially working working with folk singers <laughs> and stuff like that. Folk singers and country singers and, and uh, blues and all of the people that he had signed. Most notably, uh, I started working with Jesse Winchester. I did the engineering for Jesse Winchester. Did you produce or just engineer? No, that was produced by Robbie Robertson. And ah. most of the additional playing on it was members of the band. And that was the gig that clinched me stage fright. Was that intimidating working with them? Or did you have a good rapport with Robbie where you already felt comfortable with them? This was the first big project I had ever done. And I had met all of the guys in the band and had conversations with them through the offices of Bearsville, which was also Grossman Management, which was in, still in New York City at the time. There was no Bearsville studio upstate yet. Okay. So the record label and the management was still based in New York. And so I met a lot of the, I met the guys in the band. I met Bob Dylan, I think at one point, you know, and mm -hmm. all of the other artists that worked with Albert, I met them in New York city, but the band essentially was the transition between stage fright essentially represented the transition between New York and upstate New York for Bearsville Records, even though it was not a Bearsville production. Right. It was for Capital, I believe. But yes, correct. What happened was Albert bought a remote truck 
and then we did the basic tracking for stage fright in the Woodstock Playhouse, which was the largest open space in Woodstock. And we took all of the equipment out of the sound truck, put it in the prop tent behind the Playhouse, and essentially they set up on stage in the Playhouse, and that's where we did most of the principal recording. Then we decamped the Playhouse, and while we were at the Playhouse, they were finishing construction on Studio B and Bearsville Studios, and also converting some other buildings into offices in preparation for moving the entire label up to New York. So after we decamped the Playhouse and went to New York City to do a little more recording and some overdubs and stuff, they moved everything from the prop tent into Studio B. And so that was the first sessions that ever took place in Bearsville Studios was the remixing, overdubbing and remixing for stage five. Obviously the title track's fantastic. was your production philosophy like i mean you can't go in and really tell the band what to do so what do you how do you produce a band like the band well that was the whole thing <laughs> if you look on the albums there's no credit no production credits yeah why is because that? nobody was producing those records okay. you know yeah. it was like every it was like nobody and everybody was producing the records yeah you know yeah. It was one of those things where everybody had an opinion and everybody's opinion was sort of like factored in somehow and it made it take forever. And and it's not the way that I eventually would, you know, it wasn't the methodology I would adopt as a producer. You yeah, know? right. But, uh, you know, I did go on to do other things and, and somehow I'm not sure whether it was exactly because of that or because of other things that I had done, but uh, I became very hot as a producer, but also known for being no nonsense in the studio, partly because I knew the engineering. I could, it wasn't always me like, you know, trying to communicate with the engineer how things were supposed to sound and saying, you put a little more of this, a little less of that, blah, 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 blah. I just go down there. Okay, we're done. Let's Move it along. Yeah, exactly. I think that kind of just that's parallel to your philosophy, right? Just like no nonsense. Let's keep it moving. Let's not waste any time. Yeah. Let's not waste any time here. The studio is for making music in. Yeah. You know? Right. Right. It's probably because, you know, when I was, you know, my first studio experiences were very much, you know, it was long before you would spend months making months and months making a record like Bruce Springsteen. Or something like that. Sure. It was closer to like when the NAS first had, was looking to get a record deal. You get a half an hour studio time in some label studio and they say, record as many songs as you can in a half an hour. So you're doing it all straight to mono, straight to stereo, live. Yeah. Oh, no yeah. fooling around. This is premium time. Yeah, right. And uh, so that always, you know, despite what we heard about the Beatles and their you know, they're uh, constant fiddling around in the studio because they didn't play live anymore. You know, we're still kind of conscious about about the value of actual studio time and what and how it should be used. 
So uh, ultimately, when I kind of fully refined my philosophy as a producer, it became, first of all, song oriented. I didn't want to go into the studio with a half an album's worth of material. And then everybody's just start looking at each other. What do we do now? Yeah. You right. know, then you're just burning studio time for no reason at all. The second thing was that preferably the act has performed the material in some context before they get into the studio. So they don't, so they're not actually learning the material while they're trying to create the ultimate performance of it. Right. You know, it's, it would be great if they all could go out and play it for a couple of weeks for an audience, you know, or at least rehearse the living crap out of it so that you're ready and, you know, really fired up to do some vivacious takes of it. And then ironically enough, the thing that the audience cares the least about is sound quality. Whatever a record sounds like, the audience thinks that's what it's supposed to sound like. Sure. Yeah. That makes that's sense. That's why there are so many, that's why there's such a broad range of production styles, you know? Yeah. That's why there's Phil Spector wall of sound. And that's why there's, um, uh, Rick Rubin doing uh, Johnny Cash. Yeah. Where there's like totally dry voice acoustic guitar, nothing else, you know? Right. There's the, there's a whole realm of stuff in between there. And from an audience standpoint, they're not involved in the process of making it. They just think whatever the final product is, that's exactly what you meant it to be. Right, right. Yeah. Never thought about that, but that's absolutely true. I think they're more involved in or, or interested in the, the way the music makes them feel. Well, that's exactly it. They don't want to hear like a great performance of a crappy song. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. They'd rather hear a sloppy performance of a great song. Yeah. And there's lots of them. Yeah. You know, but there's lots and lots of sloppy performances of great songs out there that are classics. And if you heard them all slicked up, you'd say there's something wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, Joe Perry's guitar solo in Dream On. Yeah, he miffs that one little part there, but it's got such great vibe. Hey, yeah. every Jimmy Page solo. There you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, after that, like you said, you got hot and you did end up, that's when you did the Butterfield Blues Band. That must have been cool, though, knowing how you, you know, were totally into them and your first band and Woody's Truck Stop and then to get to work with them like that. I mean, that has to be a really fun thing to do. Well, it's a great, it was a great thing, but by then, you know, I didn't, you know, of course, didn't feel like an outsider. Yeah. You know, I was, a, I was the ultimate Bearsville insider at that point. You know, I worked with all these people on the, on the label and in the, um, and the management roster. And I was becoming like associated with the label, you know, when my name would come up, Bearsville would come up. And so, uh, you know, as time would go on, uh, you know, I had settled into more of a, you know, less of an outsider role. I was less, you know, that weird whiz kid who came in, you know, to shake everything up and more just, you know, somebody that you would normally see in the studio or, or in the offices. And actually, Probably there was a point at which I had done everything I could do in terms of Bearsville Records. And most of the work I did was for other labels and acts that had nothing to do with Albert. Yeah. Um, you know, Finger and Grand Punk Railroad and uh, the Dolls and Patti Smith and all of those other artists. 
uh, almost none of them were Bearsville artists. And indeed, Bearsville throughout the 70s and probably finally in the 80s was going through the slow winding down because Albert was, uh, he wasn't a very good custodian of his own label. He would hold back foreign distribution deals from Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers pretty much did all the distribution for Bearsville, but he would hold back the foreign territories, negotiate money deals with the foreign territories, but never do any record promotion in the foreign territories. He'd keep all the money and then buy properties in Bearsville and have a carpenter fix them up, you know, and turn yeah. them into a restaurant or something like that. He was great at buying restaurants <laughs> and old bars and turning them into studios and that sort of thing, just buying up real estate all over the Bearsville area and never spending any money on promotion. And then eventually, you know, he didn't have any money to sign anybody with, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they weren't signing new artists. Artists that they did have were kind of, they have their day and then they would, then they would kind of fade away. The biggest artist that they ever had was Foghat. Foghat had, a, you know, a couple of years of hits and then it was the uh, greatest hits after that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Single by Randy Van Warmer. <laughs> you know, that was like the biggest thing that happened in, you know, like one year. Right. And then, uh, and then they just stopped, you know, signing and developing people. Go out yonder, peace in the valley. Come downtown, have to rumble in the alley. Oh, you don't know the shape I'm in. Has anybody seen my lady? This living alone would drive me crazy. That was The Shape I'm In by the band, also from the album Stage Fright, produced and engineered by Todd Rundgren. Our conversation with Todd was one of the longest and most in-depth we've had on the Rhino Podcast, and as such, we're going to break it up into two episodes. Look for episode two to come in March. And make sure to check out Todd's 25-date Clearly Human virtual tour, which kicks off February 14th. Tickets and information can be found at nocapshows.com. That's nocapshows.com. Take care and be well. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 